airwaves, here is my request. You don't have to play it, but I hope you'll do your best. I've been listening to your show on the radio, and you seem like a friend to me. Howdy, hi, Victoria. Stand the man. Hello. Oh, don't get up, it's only me. Hello, welcome to a brand new year. I'm Liz. I'm Pete. 1420 3XY, how are you? It's nine after six with Lee Simon. It's 18 to six, 3DB with Keith McGowan. More grand old favourites to play for you a little later on. 3EE, the breeze 693. Good morning and welcome to our brand new radio station. Okay, the time is 22 before 9, 1272 SM with Ian Macrae in the morning. Well, hi and welcome once again to Pilots of the Airwaves. It is our 40 minutes or so where we get to talk to the people behind the voices who were friends to a whole generation. And today's guest was not only a pilot of the airwaves, he was also a pirate of the airwaves in the late 60s in the UK before returning to Australia to host the most successful breakfast program in Australia's biggest marketplace for well over a decade. Hey, Ian McRae, welcome to Pilots and thanks for joining us. Oh, great to be here, Paul. Now, Ian, through the 70s, there were three things that were synonymous with Sydney. The Harbour Bridge, the Opera House, and the Ian McRae Breakfast Program on 2SM. But of course, Ian McRae is not a Sydney original. You, of course, were born south of the border. What can you tell us about growing up in Melbourne? Well, um, I uh, didn't actually ever grow up. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, uh, well, it was interesting because we initially were living in, in uh, Gippsland in eastern Victoria, uh, my father was an electrical engineer and he worked at the Yalorn Powerhouse. And uh, so we were there for quite a few years. Then we moved to Melbourne after that. And uh, that's where I started to go to um, high school. Uh, no, um, central, what do they call it? Not high school, central. That's called central school or something anyway. But, yeah, it was interesting. I, I had two brothers and uh, we all got into lots of trouble, of course, through those years. So who or what sparked your interest in radio? I think, well, initially, I remember back um, I, when I was in my early years, around about 10 or 11, I had a feeling I wanted to be in, in live theatre. Uh, I always had a feeling I should be in that. Uh, but then I realised that uh, it doesn't really pay that much money long term. And I thought the next second best thing was perhaps look at radio. It's an entertaining medium and... Uh, a lot of people are involved in it, and uh, I thought more and more about it. We listened a lot to radio in those days, um, and so I thought, well, give it a go. So uh, when uh, the school year ended, I just went down the local telephone box. We didn't have, didn't have a phone at home in those days, um, and I rang up 3AW, and I said, you've got any jobs going on air? Uh, so after the lady, nice lady who answered the phone had stopped laughing, um, she she said, look, there could be a job coming up. We're looking for an office boy. So I gave her my details and I get a letter about a week later saying, are you interested? So, I, of course, I was. So I went in and that's how it all started. So what impressed you about AW? 
but they had a huge record library. And um, actually what happened was the way it used to go, you start as office boy and then you become, uh, um, uh, you go and work in the record library. Uh, and then when uh, an opening came for a panel operator, you move into that job. So they were the three stages, which I did. So I had a, a lot of knowledge of the record library because I was the one filing records and getting records out for the announcers. So it was quite a big, big uh, selection of, of music. Now, like most aspiring jocks of the time, it was off to the country and 3CS in Colac. So what can you tell us about your first on-air appointment? Well, I had a lot of fun, let me tell you that. It's, it's good being a, a big fish in a small pool. Um, I, when I first walked into the studio at 3CS, I couldn't believe my eyes. I thought I'd walk back into the 1930s or something. You know? <laughs> but I thought, oh, well, it's a radio station and I'll get round all this stuff. And so um, I was there for about, oh, it must be four years at 3CS. The good thing about 3CS is the fact that it's very close to Melbourne, Colac. And so I could drive home at the weekends and take my, all my dirty washing. So in 1966, you decided to pack up shop, including your dirty washing, and head off to the UK. Was the game plan a typical backpack around the UK and Europe, or was the intention always to look for work in radio? No, the intention was radio. Um, and the other travelling could come you know, a bit later or in time off. Um, so I'd seen a story in a magazine about the pirate radio, which was just starting then, uh, and it's about, in particular, Radio Caroline. And I thought, that looks pretty interesting. I was getting a bit bored with the country living, and uh, I thought I'd have a go at that. So I sold my car, and uh, with that money, I bought a ticket on the on the Oriana, that original Oriana, and, uh, and went to the UK. And uh, with no, I think I arrived with about uh, £10 in my pocket. Uh, luckily, I met a nice ladies on the ship uh, who said you can come and stay on that couch where we're living, going to be living, until you can find somewhere to live. So that's how it all started and um, went on from there. Radio City, it sounds fine on 299. Now, no doubt there would have been plenty of local talent looking for a gig on the Pirates. So how does a young man from Melbourne, Australia, end up broadcasting from the Shivering Sands Army Fort in the Thames Estuary? Well, I actually, um, I had, I bought a, a transistor radio in Cairo on the way, uh, on the ship, and um, we, it finished up hanging on a hook behind the toilet door uh, to keep people entertained while they were doing what they had to do. And uh, I happened to have it on, and I found this um, radio station coming in loud and clear called Radio City. And I thought, gee, that sounds pretty professional. And so they had a competition going. You had to write in, of course, in those days. And so I got, I wrote the address down on a piece of toilet paper and, um, and I shot off a, a letter to them uh, to say, any jobs going? So they said, come on in, we'll have a chat. I didn't realise at the time this was a, one of the few privately owned uh, pirate stations and didn't have much money. They didn't have any money, in fact, and they were paying bugger all in terms of wages. But as, as the guy that ran it said, you, at least you'll get to eat. Uh, and you've got some place to live and with a roof over your head with a very nice ocean view, about 10 miles out. Uh, and, um, and so I said, OK, I'll go for it. So what the hell? Uh, so um, just to explain um, what these forts were, they were built in the Second World War and they had big gun emplacements on the roof and they were there to um, protect the shipping lanes uh, coming in from the Germans, of course. 
and they were then abandoned after the war, and uh, that's where we found them. So they were, we were using, actually, the, the technicians were brilliant. They got the original um, diesel generator to get, get going, and that gave us the power, and that was the original one from the war. Uh, so it's quite amazing. And, I mean, the transmitters they built themselves, uh, they were all like chewing gum and bits of string, basically, but they worked, you know. So, so that was a quite interesting experience. And uh, I've got to say probably the, the highlight or the low light of the whole uh, time I was there, we, we had a boarding party came on uh, at midnight. We're all fast asleep. And uh, it, without going into all the detail, it was a blackmail attempt. Um, and we were kept at, uh, held at gunpoint uh, for a week. Uh, when they came ashore on board, they said, anyone wants to leave, uh, you can go now. If not, you're here. And um, me being young and foolish, I, I volunteered to stay. Um, and so we were. In that, they took us off the air, of course. They took the crystal out of the transmitter so we couldn't go on the air as part of the blackmail attempt. And eventually the owner of the station, Reg Calvert, he lived ashore uh, and he went to confront the guy who'd put the boarding party on the station. Uh, an argument ensued and uh, Reg Calvert was shot dead. So uh, that was the end of that siege, of course. They all had to leave after Scotland Yard came out and investigated. But they couldn't do a thing out there because they were outside British waters. So and eventually the guy went to court um, and got off on, um, I think, self-defence or something. Yeah. So besides no invasions, what were some of the broadcasting rules on a pirate radio station? Well, the only rules, of course, were uh, set by the, the company that owned the station. Uh, for example, we were allowed, I think it was a six-pack of beer a week, but we got around that, of course. We smuggled stuff in, you know, wink, wink, say no more. and. Uh, um, I guess the rules were just obviously um, common sense, basically. Um, be aware of your other... On, on the ships, especially, there were two groups of people who had to get on together. One group was the, 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 the sailing people, the captain of the ship. You had to have a captain because of insurance purposes. Uh, and then the other group... I said there were the sailors, the captains, all that. And then there were the radio people. Uh, obviously, I was part of that group who ran the radio station. So we got on quite well together. I, I don't recall any any dramas or anything like that or bad feelings. Now, part of Macca's monster music show, hope you didn't have to say that too often, on Radio City was to fly the Aussie flag, which you did by giving a quartet of cruise ship entertainers known as the Seekers valuable airtime and exposing their music to your audience. So how did that relationship come about? Uh, well, I think it was just from their record company initially, and it wasn't just Radio City. We did we were one of the first to play their songs because the BBC weren't, which is pretty funny, because later, of course, they became BBC favourites. Uh, but um, I think it was their record company uh, uh, approached the pirate stations and um, said, can you help out? And we did, and, of course, it was a big success. It wasn't until later when I came back to Australia that I got to know uh, the other guys in the group but I did know, I had known uh, Judy um, from way back at 3CS Colac because we used to have a, a jazz show on Saturday mornings at midday and we'd have people come down from Melbourne to be guests on the show and she came a couple of times. She was then singing with a, with a jazz band, of course. 
So, Ian, let's not be too modest about it. How much of your involvement with the Seekers resulted in their incredible success that they experienced in the UK? Oh, I think it was, I have to credit all the other stations too, but it was Pirate Radio, I think, should be credited for, uh, for making them what they were. And then once the BBC saw how popular they were, then suddenly they were very welcome in the BBC studios. But, of course, back then, um, this is really why Pirate Radio started in the first place over there, because the BBC were, there were no commercial stations allowed. It was just BBC. And, um, and the BBC only played about one hour of pop music a week. And a lot of that had to be re-recorded because the Musos Union said you got to re-record it for broadcast purposes, which gave their musicians, of course, extra work. Uh, but uh, here was all this going on with the Beatles breaking, the Rolling Stones and all the other great British pop groups, and the BBC were just about ignoring them. So that's the reason really pop radio or pirate radio came about in, in the UK. Now, the BBC's Radio 1 and Radio 2 were both conceived as a direct response to the popularity of you guys playing top 40 hits and the current music. Now, the great Tony Blackburn was recruited by the BBC from Radio Caroline to head up their first breakfast program. So I'm wondering if there were ever any approaches to you to join the BBC in those early years. No, um, I didn't really want to join the BBC. Um, I did actually go and do it before I got the job on Radio City. I did an audition at the BBC. An Australian guy I knew got me in there. Uh, and here I was, you know, announcing classical music and all this stuff. It just was all wrong. So they, were, they weren't going to give me a job, you know. <laughs> too rough, too rough, old boy. Uh, so, um, yeah, so I didn't ever get to work for the BBC. But the interesting thing was... Um, one of the, the, the big draw cards of Pirate Radio was the fact we didn't have scripts. It was all ad lib and it was all um, um, off the cuff. But the BBC didn't understand that. And so when they started, when the pirates closed down and they started Radio Radio 2, was it? Radio 1? Radio 1, I think it was. Um, uh, uh, they still had their announcers, and many of them ex-pirate radio jocks, reading from scripts. It was just... Eventually, they woke up to what was going on, and that was taken care of. But it was pretty bad. The first two couple of years of BBC One was just terrible. So Pirate Radio disappears in the UK and you head back to Australia to score the breakfast gig at 2SM just at the start of the innovative More Music format. So how did you land that gig? Well, actually, uh, when I got back to Sydney, I, I couldn't get any work. There's nothing going. Uh, and eventually a mate of mine put me onto Perth Radio. In, there was a job going at 6PR in Perth. So I went there for a while. I only lasted there about two months. And then Rod Muir uh, from 2SM uh, rang me and said, look, we're looking at changing the format. It was their middle of the road music and a bit of talk. Um, would you be interested in coming back? So I, as it was, I wasn't really very happy in Perth. At, at that time, it was so damn provincial, you know, um, having spent two years in London, it was just I couldn't handle it. Um, you know, back, back then, uh, if you came from Adelaide, you're a bloody Easterner. So, <laughs> so uh, I said to Rod, yeah, I'm on the way. And so that's how I finished up uh, at 2SM. 
Now, the Muir More Music format was tight and heavily formatted and left little room for announcer creativity at times. So what sort of license were you given for your shift? Um, probably a little bit more on the breakfast show than the other guys did, apart from the drive session. Um, the, the, he still wanted me to – Rod still wanted it to be tight and bright, as he used to put it. Um, and only one thought per break. That is only one subject you'd look after between songs. But he said, everything you do has to have a reason for being there. Uh, and if I ask you what it is, I need you to tell me what it is. I need an answer. So it was, it was, um, it was pretty easy. Um, I had a good team around me too. Um, and so um, it, it went, I had no idea it was going to go gangbusters like it did. But uh, at that time, there wasn't the competition in the marketplace, to be fair, either, uh, until uh, 2UW uh, changed format to take us on, basically. Um, so it, it was good times. A lot of hard work. I mean, mm. a lot of preparation went into that show, even though it sounded like it didn't, but it did. Now, the station had a winning formula, but also had some great jocks to pull it off. Of course, yourself, Gibson and Moore, Gordon O'Byrne, Ronnie Sparks, Peter Grace, Trevor Sinclair, legends of Australian radio. Well, they all became legends, yeah. Um, even now, looking back on that time, I, when we started that format, I had no idea it was going to go like it did. And, and that's the, one of the sad reasons I haven't got much material recorded to, you know, uh, look back on because we didn't think it was going to be a big deal. So we didn't bother air-checking stuff. Special guest on Pilots today is the legendary Ian McRae. And Ian, you did work solo for a number of years, but then somehow acquired the companionship of a gentleman by the name of the Hon Nick Jones. What can you tell us about Nicholas Eugene Jones and what he brought to the 2SM Breakfast Show? Well, we heard about this guy. He was a, a fake politician. He was a bit of a send-up, calling himself the Hon Nick Jones. And um, I thought it was a funny story. I think I saw it in the local paper or something. And so we got Nick to come in and just do, and the plan was just one interview, but it went, went so well, it was so funny that he finished up full time with us. And he developed this force. When he first came in as a Hon Nick Jones, he, he spoke normally, uh, but uh, then he could develop this rough voice. And, uh, and the Hon Nick Jones became a permanent fixture on the program. Now, Ian, the breakfast program didn't do outside broadcasts. They were actually events and extravaganzas that would stop traffic and have the whole city talking. Stunts like paying the Harbour Bridge toll during October, and the most famous of all, giving away a trip on a jumbo that was going to go under the Harbour Bridge. Firstly, where did that idea come from, and how hard was it to keep it a secret? Yeah, well, the, I've got to be honest and say the, the idea grew... Uh, and was actually first mentioned at the, jocks, the weekly jocks meeting. And then it was up to me to pick it up from there and make it work, basically. Uh, we, we knew that um, initially people would be a little bit uh, suspicious and they were going to say, oh, it's really a, an aeroplane or whatever. So my job was to make, uh, to change the perception of that. And we did that by doing things like um, we did a call to the Boeing factory in, in the US and we spoke to one of their designers, genuinely, he, he was in on the, on the joke, of course. And he said, he said, oh yeah, you, you could probably could fly a 747 under the Harbour Bridge. 
You might just uh, clip the pinch gut fort on the way up, but uh, it, it's all to do with the wind and and uh, how much weight you have on board. So we, we had a competition to win a, a seat on the jumbo and only six people could come because of the weight thing, you see. Um, and so uh, when the day came, uh, we... Um, we got them up there. We had a, 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 one of those seats on the back of elephants, you know, you sit on for six people. We had um, a, a genuine, uh, um, I think it was British Airways actually, pilot sitting up there with an umbrella. Take, and we had some of the cabin crew uh, serving champagne. So in all, all a good fun day. One, one lady got a bit upset because she had gone out and bought a new dress and everything, an outfit for this big occasion, and uh, she was a bit upset about sitting on the back of an elephant. But we, we, gave, her, we gave her a mystery trip, unconscious, uh, as a, and she was happy then. So Hong Kong, London, Bulgaria, there weren't too many places you didn't get to, but you never made it to Alaska. No, I'm still really pooey about that, you know. Uh, I'm, I was all set to go, and then I got this inner ear problem with vertigo and everything, and I kept getting dizzy spells. And, um, and so they said, you can't fly. So I was all set to go. And then uh, Gordon O'Byrne finished up going, I think, in my place. It was going to actually a place called North Pole. That's the name of the, of the town. And of course, their big uh, thing is tourism and Santa Claus there. And that's the reason we were going there. But uh, anyway, Googie told me he had a great time, what he could remember. <laughs> <laughs> now, like other AM music stations around the country, early 80s proved to be challenging times with, of course, the emerging of FM radio. When did you start to feel the pendulum swing away from you? Yeah, I think it would have been, well, it'd have to be a combination of things. Firstly, 2WS came on the air. They were at that time AM, of course, but uh, they were, and they aimed totally at the West at that time. Um, and so they were a big competition because they were, they were pulling on the loyalty of people who lived in the West. This is your station. So that, that hit, knocked us around a bit. And as you say, FM started, of course, Triple M, and then Rod Muir left to go and head that up. And that left us with a gaping gap in our programming. Um, and then things just sort of slowly, slowly crumbled. Um, I hung in there as long as I felt comfortable, but I could see the, every, every server, I could see the, the end coming for that, for that format. So, um, and then some of the other guys left and went to Triple M, and so I eventually left and went to 2UW to do the morning show, which I thought was great because I didn't have to get up at 3.30 in the morning. Uh, but that didn't last. It lasted a year because what they did, they tied me down more than Rod Muir. I, I think I got about 45 seconds an hour to say anything, just about. So, And I was bored shitless, you know, and, and uh, I didn't have any backup uh, production people or anything like that. It was... It was boring. I think it's pretty well, I don't get bored easily, but that's one of the most boring times of my life. So 1970 to 1982 is an incredible run in anyone's radio language, but to stay on top for so long, you must look back on those SM days with a great deal of pride and professional satisfaction. I do, absolutely. As I said, I, you know, I just find, find it hard to believe that after all these years, we're still even talking about it. I've got a lovesick
Sell yourself short there, Ian. Now, you did make the move to Adelaide to 5AD and 5KA. After being king of breakfast radio in Australia's biggest city, what was it like moving into a marketplace where, to many of the listening audience, you were probably unknown? That's correct. It was it was tough going initially because I have to, when you move to a new city, you, you have to learn everything about it. The sporting teams, the loyalties, the politics, the transport systems, everything. Where the suburbs are. Um, all that stuff. So the first few months there, I was just flat out just learning stuff about the place. But eventually, uh, when I moved to uh, 5KA, which was a great radio station then, I loved working there. Um, I loved the music. It was uh, top 40, basically. And um, it was just fun. And we pulled all these stunts like I used to do in Sydney, and, and that, that really got us. That actually got us to number one a couple of times in breakfast, against SAFM, which was a brand new, the first FM station in Adelaide, commercial. And uh, so I was quite proud of that, that we knocked them off a couple of times, mainly because of the stunts we pulled, like the bullfight. Now you say, what's the bullfight? It was the Grand Prix was just starting in Adelaide, the first Grand Prix. And so we put out the word, we heard, there's going to be a bullfight to coincide with the Grand Prix, and the winner of the uh, of the Grand Prix would be given the bull's ear uh, as a memento. And to do this, to do this, we did two things. We put an ad in the in the paper in the advertiser uh, under employment, saying "Wanted bullfight bullfighters, uh, no experience necessary, willing to train." You know, and put a box number in there. And the other one was under the livestock section that was wanted aggressive bulls for inaugural bullfight season. <laughs> and oh, all the animal activists went crazy. Um, RSPCA went mad. And actually, questions were asked on the floor of Parliament in Canberra in the Senate. What was it all about? And, uh, and eventually it just got out of hand. And, and uh, so um, General Manager Stan Barrett called us in and said, listen, boys, we've got to call this off. It's just going crazy. We've got demonstrations outside the station and all this going on. And so we had to admit to it, it was all, all a stunt. But that sort of thing went on a lot, and that got us to number one a couple of times. So was there ever a temptation or opportunity to return back to Melbourne? Oh, no, no. I, I, I mean, I left Melbourne basically when I was, what, uh, uh, I suppose... Well, went up to Colac, I suppose around 18, you know, and that was it. And then I came back, as you say, went to Perth and then Sydney and then Adelaide and then back to Sydney. Well, I guess I've been two-thirds of my life in Sydney, so I feel more a Sydney sider than a Melbourneite. Okay, a couple of quick clarifications, if you don't mind, Ian. Did you once advise listeners that telecom were about to clean out their telephone lines that were full of dust and that everyone should put their telephone receivers into a paper bag to collect the dust? That's right, yeah. High-power high uh, uh, high air will be shot through the telephone lines. They hadn't been cleaned for years. And back in those days, there were still those switchboards that you used to put, had all the holes that used to put plugs into them. So we told all the switchboard operators to you know, put something like cover up all the holes. 
and uh, people at home to put perhaps put their their phone in a paper bag or something while this operation is going on. That caused a bit of a stir too, actually. Okay, what about this one? Do you think that put a stinker in the chamber would be a good slogan for a political campaign? Yeah, well, that was Hon Nix. That was because we we did we did stand for for Parliament. We stood for the Senate, and we never dreamed we'd get in, of course. And his campaign slogan was "Put a stinker in the chamber." And we had some car stickers, "Put a stinker in the chamber," car stickers, and everything, you know. So, uh, and then the night of the election, we were getting a bit sweaty brown because it looked like we were going to win. I thought. I said to Nick, "What do we do? We can't go to Canberra. I've got it. We've got to be here for the breakfast show." And l- luckily, we we didn't. I think all the votes w- would have come mostly from Sydney people who knew us on the radio, and it was just uh, going along with the joke, you know. But it looked a bit hairy there for a while. Now, Ian, not only did you play the hits in the UK, you also made the hits and almost onto the top of the pops with the Ballad of Lady Di in nineteen eighty-one. Down amongst the upper crust, Lord Spencer had a thought. I'll marry off me daughter die that should amuse the court. So he placed an ad in the Sunday Times and went on the castle gate. It read, come and have tea with Di and me, cos it's time she had a mate. And Lady Di, Di, Di said, stick it in your eye. The only man I'm going to marry is Prince Charlie. Who came up with that idea and how high did it climb in the UK? Well, that was the Hon Nick once again. He wrote that. Of course, he's on it with me. Um, and uh, uh, locally here, it, it went to, I think, top 10, uh, and then it got released in the UK. Um, the problem was that at that time it was released in the UK, with a picture cover, by the way, a little 45, um, uh, there had been a lot of uh, death threats against the royal couple. And there were other Lady Die songs too. Two others were rating quite well up against ours. And the BBC were playing all three. Uh, but then they withdrew all of them once these death threats happened. And so it went from, I think, number 15 or something to zero uh, out of sight after that happened. So that was the end of that, which is a shame. Because we'd just been to Bulgaria to do the breakfast show, and then the plan was to go on to the UK and go on top of the Pops and do the Ballad of Lady Die, which we we got there, and we did actually record it. Uh, and then this happened, and then the whole thing didn't get to air, of course. Bit of a shame, that. Summer, summer, Pilots of the Airwaves with Ian McRae. And Ian, it's now time for a dozen or so questions I'm going to fire at you. The first one being, where were you when you heard that John Lennon had died? You know, I don't remember. Um, I know it was the dying days of the once great 2SM. I wasn't on the air at the time it was announced in the news. Um, like the time when Elvis died, that was I was on the air and that was pretty big, you know. But to be honest, I've got a probably a memory fade there on exactly uh, where I was. I know, obviously, everyone couldn't believe it. Same as Elvis, you know, just impossible. But, uh, yeah, I can't, I can't give you an answer on that one. Do you recall the last concert ticket you actually paid for? Well, I don't remember ever paying for a concert ticket. I'm being honest here. <laughs> the funny thing was I never liked concerts very much, music concerts. It was really weird. I just didn't like, I don't know, something about them. It used to give me... Um, Something used to annoy me about. I think it was just the crowd. I don't know what it was, but um, see, I mean, in those in those big days at two SM, 
uh, the, the 2SM would actually, they produce or they would uh, sponsor the concert. So we all got to go for free if we, if indeed we weren't comparing it. I mean, I, I got to uh, introduce Led Zeppelin at the uh, Sydney Cricket Ground, I think it was. Um, that was 40,000 crowd there. And of course, we got involved in the in the two of them concert at the Opera House Steps. That was pretty big too. So, um, I, yeah, honestly, I don't remember ever paying to see a concert. Hey, listen, don't worry, you're not the only person in the industry that's answered that way. Is there a concert act that you regret never seeing? Well, obviously, the Beatles. Um, I know probably would have been futile anyway. All that screaming going on, you wouldn't hear a thing. But uh, you know, I, I don't know why I never got to see the Beatles. Um, it just, just didn't happen, so that would be my one regret. That would be a concert I would like to have seen. The word you had most trouble pronouncing on air? Uh, I guess representative. See, even now, even now saying it, I've got to be very slow. The way I pronounce it, as in the House of Representatives, I guess it's a lazy tongue or something. I don't know, it was just, uh, that was always my biggest problem. Okay, was there ever an incident on air that had you thinking you might get those Don't Come Monday orders? Well, a couple, I suppose. Uh, one was uh, with the Honnick Jones on 2SM. Um, uh, we had to be very careful what we said. We were pretty pretty wild, but the, at that time, the station was owned by the Catholic Church. And um, so, and, and there were some people at executive level in the church who were keeping a dossier on us because they wanted to show that the, the Archbishop all these terrible things going to air on their station and close us down and make us a God station. Um, and I know there was there was one, uh, we got into trouble, one one sketch. At that time, there was a, a gardening expert on, on ABC TV, Alan Seal, who had a problem with his S's. Alan, I can't do it now. Anyway, um, he, 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 we invented a character called Fred Shovel, and it was based on Alan Seal. And one morning, Alan Seal, uh, Fred Shovel, was talking about rooftop gardens. And he said, they're very good, but you've got to be careful with rooftop gardens. You don't get a root in the bedroom. And so that caused a few problems. And I guess going back before that, way back to the days in my first country job at uh, 3CS, uh, I was on a night shift and um, we had these, these cereals on these uh, soap operas on a couple at night and back in those days on those big 16 inch discs and uh, so I put this on the first time I, be, I did it and um, apparently I played the whole 15 minutes through on the Q channel so nothing went to air. I believe that the standby tape at the transmitter came on but I wasn't monitoring off air so and I thought oh I'm gone <laughs> but no one said anything no, no calls. Nobody complained. So I figured no one was listening anyway. Skyhooks or Sherbet? I like both for different reasons. Um, I guess Skyhooks were kind of rougher uh, and Sherbet more smooth. I guess I preferred Sherbet for the actual songs, but I, I like both of them. The Rolling Stones or the Beatles? Uh, once again, different reasons for liking both of them. Um, each had their strong points. Uh, I was at a media event with the Rolling Stones at a place called the Old Spaghetti Factory in Sydney. There's a famous photo of them in the in the driver's cab. There's an old Sydney tram in there. They were in the drive. You often see that photo popping up now. The whole four of them. I only just briefly said hello. I didn't sort of have any long conversations with them, but they were fun guys. 
And um, so, yeah, for, once again, for both reasons, I, I, I like the Rolling Stones. I wouldn't say I prefer one against the other, actually. Most treasured piece of memorabilia that you have from those early radio days? I don't have any. Um, I'm so, sorry some of these questions are a bit negative, but um, uh, the reason, as I said before, I, I didn't I didn't really keep any anything, um, not knowing what would happen down the track, you know. So, I mean, I've got lots of lots of uh, videotapes and stuff of stuff I did. Um, that's about all. I did have some. I did have some uh, awards, uh, which I'd won at various functions, and um, they all went sort of mouldy green, and I chucked them out. So, so I'm I'm devoid of memorabilia. Ian, the biggest news story that broke while you were on air? I guess it would need to be the Granville Bridge disaster in, was it 1977, I think it was? Uh, a peak hour train derailed and brought down the Bold Street Bridge, killed about 83 people, including a beautiful young lady who worked in the 2SM office too. She didn't get to work that day. So that was, it started out, uh, the newsroom t- told me that a pedestrian bridge had come down. It didn't sound very, you know, uh, very... Uh, very big as a story, then it gradually developed and then we sent one of the newscasts there and, and then it became obvious what a terrible disaster it, it had become. No, I do remember that story very, very well. Ian, was there ever a moment when someone walked into your studio when you were suddenly starstruck? I, I thought about this one. I, I honestly don't recall being starstruck by anybody. Um, uh, they were doing a job in my mind, uh, probably a good one, and so was I. So I was there to talk to them, and they were there to talk to me. And, and uh, I did I did propose marriage to uh, Susie Quattro, and she knocked me back. I was really upset about that, and I told her that later. Um, and she, then she went and married that Len Tucky guy, and look, look where that went. She missed out there. Bloody hell, she did. <laughs> Best words of advice from a program manager. Oh, the old be yourself, you know, they all say that, but it's true. It really is true. Don't try and copy somebody else. Just develop your own personality. Um, and, uh, and as I said before, Rob Muir's advice was keep it tight and bright. Finally, Ian, the two albums that you would consider to be the soundtrack of your teenage years. I reckon Bob Dylan, what was it, uh, Highway 61 Revisited? Mm-hmm. And uh, also a bit folky was the, a group called the New Christie Minstrels. They had a big hit called Green Green. Uh, Barry Maguire was lead singer. He later had a big hit called The Eve of Destruction, um, which was a lot of fun. <clears throat> uh, anyway, uh, that, that, I think I, that, they were the two that, that my teenage years and, and just a bit beyond, that was the soundtrack to those. Well, Ian McRae, what can I say? Your 2SM breakfast show was legendary, and you yourself are a legend. It's been great chatting with you, and thanks for your time today on Pilots. Okay, Paul, no problem. It's been great talking to you. Ian McRae on Pilots of the Airwaves. (laughs) 